0: News and information. This is Radio 3.
1: Good morning and welcome to Friday. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 16th of September. This is Money Talk on Radio 3 and I'm Peter Lewis. In the business headlines today, Fitch Ratings has slashed its global GDP forecasts, citing the European gas crisis, high inflation and the sharp acceleration in the pace of global monetary policy tightening. Fitch now expects world GDP to grow by 2.4% in 2022, revised down by half a percentage point, and by just 1.7% next year, cut by one percentage point. It says China's recovery is constrained by COVID-19 pandemic restrictions and a prolonged property slump. Fitch now expects China's GDP growth to slow to 2.8% this year and recover to 4.5% next year. China's State Council has unveiled more measures to try and revive its faltering economy including extending tax deferral for small firms, stepping up efforts to stabilise foreign trade and approving more nuclear power plants. The PBOC will make a special re-lending facility of US$28.7 billion available to commercial banks to support the initiative. China's state banks cut their deposit rates for the first time since 2015. China's four largest banks cut three-year deposit rates by 15 basis points to 2.6% and three-month, six-month, one-year and five-year rates by 10 basis points, effective from yesterday. Singapore will create up to 20,000 finance jobs over five years. Under a plan unveiled Thursday, by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the city-state is projected to add 3,000 to 4,000 net rolls on average every year during 2021 to 2025, while the financial sector is estimated to grow by 4 to 5% a year. The Financial Services Industry Transformation Map 2025 aims to boost Singapore's capabilities in wealth management, insurance, fintech and philanthropy. And the plan includes an investment of $285 million in local industry talent and $71 million in a fund over five years to support sustainability in the sector. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris of Econosis Advisory and Martin Henniker from St. James's Place Wealth Management. With a view from India, is Toby Lawson of Societe Generale India.
0: Money Talk on,
1: RTHK Radio 3. on Wall Street overnight, US stocks resumed their slide as bond yields rose and US mortgage rates reached their highest level since 2008. The S&P 500 fell 1.1% to 3,901, the lowest point of the month. The Dow outperformed, but still dropped 173 points, or 0.6%, to 30,962, its lowest close in two months. The NASDAQ shared 1.4% to 11,552. In Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 index fell 0.7%, London's FTSE 100 rose 0.1%. Hong Kong stocks rebounded from a six-month low yesterday um, uh, on easing COVID-19 restrictions in Chengdu, and Hanan City's Sanya City said it had lifted the citywide static management. The Hang Seng rose 83 points, or 0.4% to 18,930. The Tech Index added a third of a percent, on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 1.2% at 3,200. Chinese property developers led the gains after Guangzhou and Shuzhou eased property restrictions. Guangzhou will now allow property developers to reduce sale prices of homes by as much as 20% compared with 6% previously. Financial outlet Yizhai reported on Thursday in what would be the biggest cuts allowed by a top-tier mainland city. Shuzhou has reportedly scrapped restrictions on home purchases by non-local residents in six districts. The Hang Seng mainland properties index jumped 4.2% higher. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil tumbled 3.5% to $90.84 a barrel. Gold dropped 2% to $1,662 an ounce. Treasury yields continued their march higher on Thursday with a short end of the curve leading the way. The yield on the two-year note rose eight basis points to 3.86%. That's the highest level since 2007. The 10-year yield rose four basis points to 3.45% leaving the yield curve the most inverted since September 2000. And the average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage climbed to 6.2% in the US this week. That's the highest level since the global financial crisis and more than double what it was a year ago. And the US dollar index... Remains close to a two-decade high. The euro this morning trading at parity. The Japanese yen is at 143.38 against the buck. Sterling dropped 0.7% to one dollar fourteen and a half cents, and it's dropped below nine Hong Kong dollars. It's trading right now at eight Hong Kong dollars and ninety-nine cents. China's offshore yuan has slid past the key seven mark against the dollar for the first time since July 2020. Uh, It's rebounded a little bit. Trading at uh, seven dollars one and a half cents this morning. Um, sorry, trading at, at seven dollars one and a half cents this morning below the seven mark. Another currency that is weakening is the Korean won, which is at a 13-year low against the dollar. Finance Minister Chun Kyung Ho said authorities would intervene to stem the decline if there was excessive volatility. Bitcoin fell over 2% to $19,600. And the Ethereum network completed its long-awaited and much-delayed transition to a new system for validating transactions. The so-called merge is intended to vastly reduce the network's energy consumption and make it easier for applications running on it to achieve scale. Ethereum is down 6% to $1,502, having lost more than half of its value this year. And taking a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets this morning, they seem to be on the slide. The ASX 200 in Australia down three quarters of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off 0.9%. The Cosby is down half a percent in South Korea. And futures markets pointing to a loss of 230 points for the Hang Seng at the open. Times 810, let's welcome our guests. With us is Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, Martin Henniker, Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James's Place Wealth Management. Welcome, Martin. Good morning, Peter,
2: always a pleasure.
1: Thank you. China's State Council has unveiled more measures to try and revive its economy. It's included extending tax deferrals for small firms. It's gonna step up efforts to stabilize foreign trade and approve more nuclear power plants and it's putting aside a special re-lending facility of 200 billion yuan that's about 29 billion us dollars to make available to commercial banks to support the initiative and yesterday china's state banks cut their deposit rates for the first time since 2015. china's four largest banks cut three-year deposit rates by 15 basis points to 2.6%. Three-month, six-month, one-year, and five-year rates were cut by 10 basis points, effective from yesterday. Let me start there, um, Andrew. This is the first cut since 2015. What sort of impact is it going to have, if any?
3: Well, f- fairly zilch because first, it's very, very small. Okay. Secondly, I'm not quite sure what it is aiming at. Uh, cutting interest rates in general is part where you're trying to make credit cheaper. For people that are borrowing not necessarily for those that are that are saving but anyway it is indicative that interest rates are coming down in china and absolutely adore it because it gives me it gives me fuel and ammunition each time people say central banks are cutting are increasing interest (laughs) rates everywhere i says no they don't look also at kuroda that apparently uh, sent a signal that if the fed goes up to one percent he will carry on watching television (laughs) zil's impact Mm. um The part, however, that concerns me, and this is not flippant, neither armchair criticizing, is uh, more taxes are cut. Look, in general, each time you cut a tax, it is, takes minimum one year before it is effective. Mm. So if Hong Kong Tomorrow tells me, Andrew, your income tax is going to come down for 15 to 10%, I won't see this for another one year. Mm. Okay, so it's very nice, but uh, I think it should be uh, both indicative and compulsory for financiers to watch the film. I can't remember the actual title of it, but the main character always goes around saying, Show me the money. Show me the money. In other words, I want money on the table, not <laughs> uh, not money in a year's time. And the, the same thing, <laughs> and uh, finishing very, very quickly, uh, atomic power stations on average, at least in the West, take between three and five years to be constructed. My case rests.
1: A lot of things there, but on on your point about uh, why lower deposit rates, I presume um, this allows the banks to then cut their lending rates further without having to have um, sort of an official cut, if you like, in the loan prime rate. So, in other words, this is good for the banks' uh, profit margin. For their (laughs) margin. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, if they didn't cut, yes. 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 But Martin, what, what do you think about these latest efforts to try and boost the economy? We're seeing a lot of them coming out almost on a daily basis now aren't we but are, are they working do any of them impress you at all?
2: Well yes I think the first thing just to reiterate what Andre said is really noteworthy you know that the trend of you know rising interest rates and fear of you know further rates doesn't really apply to China. You see the CPI number um, in China of August was just 2.5% and mm. PPI just even dropped more 2.3% so that really gives the country room um, to roll out various stimulus measures. And as you just said, uh, Peter, they have done quite a lot of them and they keep rolling out others. And I do think some of those banks will get some government pressure actually um, to not uh, make higher profits based on the cut of the deposit rate, but um, pass on that cost saving in the form of higher lending rates. And it might also incentivize, incentivize some savers to reconsider Um, equities which just happen to trade uh, at relatively low valuation historically and also compared with global markets. I mean GDP might be low but first of all in absolute terms when you look at the 2.8% figure that's being floated now sort of as the lowest that I've been seeing that's still represents 557 billion US dollar growth based on 19.9 trillion GBP, which is higher than Thailand at 522 billion, the entire economy of Thailand that is. So that's still not too uh, shabby, but perhaps more important even, there isn't actually, um, a correlation between historic uh, growth rates or growth rates and stock market returns mm-hmm. that happens at the same time because markets are always anticipative so um, given given all these factors, we think there are good opportunities in China and um, well across other markets as well but China in particularly with anyone with exposure who has suffered, you know, over the last couple of years, personally, I would think that throwing in the towel now, now <laughs> might be the worst possible you might be timing. throwing it in at the bottom. Yes, exactly.
1: Is, is the PBOC in a bit of a bind at the moment? It wants to provide more support, obviously, to the economy, but at the same time, we're seeing the RMB now, it's now gone below that, uh, that seven level um, against the dollar. Presumably, they don't want to let the exchange rate slip too far, do they?
2: Yes, absolutely. They do like stability and I think that is really why you're not seeing any You know, significant uh, cuts. Um, But you know, just the fact that they don't have to raise interest rates already puts them at sort of an advantage, and they can roll out other measures that are not related to to cutting, even on the regulatory side, which has been long talked about. And just very recently, they they started approving some of the game names of companies again, and I think that really has worked its way through. And and everybody is sort of pulling on the same strings now to stimulate in various ways, property. Uh, restriction easing and so on and so on. So I think quite, or I'm quite positive about those latest developments.
1: Andrew, what do you make about all this, these these slides in Asian currencies? We're seeing the Japanese yen is what at a 24 year low, the Korean won at a 14 year low, the Malaysian ringgit is on the slide. Um, are we getting to the point where this becomes problematic or is it maybe good uh, for for countries that their economies are um, are sliding, makes them more competitive doesn't it? Like always
3: my answer has two parts, uh, first is because the first one I know absolutely what I'm going to say and the second one I'm furiously thinking what I'm going to say, okay, first part of course is is that as interest rates uh, sorry, as exchange rates weaken it means that they are not raising interest rates so this is this is quite, I mean some of them have, okay, uh, South Korea did, in a way Singapore did Philippines did Uh, Malaysia I believe did okay Mm -hmm. but a weaker currency simply means they're not increasing interest rates and I'm 100% uh, uh, behind that and it also gives light to the continuous old red herrings that uh, um, all Asians have got only uh, a a US dollar policy in other words they will do whatever it takes in order to either maintain or not maintain their competitiveness with the US dollar and issues like inflation okay, uh, that, doesn't, uh, that, that doesn't really cut, uh, cut significant master. Then, of course, we have the case of the renminbi, which is quasi-pegged, and we have the case of the Hong Kong dollar, which is completely pegged, and uh, in the case of the renminbi, I do not disagree with the notions that the Chinese may not be terribly happy to see it significantly over seven, but at the same time, oh, this is very boring, you could say that it
1: helps their export. Mm. Uh, drive. Well, that's import uh, inflation as well, though, doesn't it?
3: Well, but uh, as we have already seen, inflation is not an issue for China. It's as so simple mm. as that. So okay. they are not going to say, oh good God, no, we can't let that let this happen to the RMB," because otherwise, okay.
1: Martin, from an in- investment perspective, what, what do these sliding currencies mean for you? Does it rather complicate the uh, the investment picture around the region?
2: Well, I do think it opens up good. Uh, investment opportunities because firstly you you have the valuation level which is sort of inside a country, but then secondly, from an international investors' perspective, you also might see potential currency gains. And even if the currencies themselves don't rebound necessarily, uh, f- the companies can typically pass on rising prices to end consumers if they have a strong edge in the market. And we are not heading for a global uh, abyss. Uh, that's to say. So for. Japan, uh, you also have a lot of exporters as well and their profits might be rising on the back of stronger revenues and other currencies. Um, One more thing, I do think also that What's quite peculiar is due to high debt levels, both in Japan, Europe, and e- even the U.S., I think there's, there's limits on how high interest rates in the future um, could go. I do think inflationary pressures will come through more in Japan going forward than we have seen so far. Producer prices are around 9%. Um, now as well. And right now, Japanese uh, households still hold a vast majority of their savings in cash or insurance or guaranteed type of products. And I think there's potential for some of this to shift more back into properties and equities uh, as a means to potentially get better returns, but also on the defensive side to protect better against inflation. I doubt also that the US can just go ahead and hike rates forever when you look at the terminal Fed funds rate which is what the market expects now where the the peak of this uh, hiking cycle lies it's about 4.4 4%. Four percent, but the fiscal position of the U.S. government isn't all that strong, and there's concerned mm. on the national debt if, if there's further substantial increases in interest rates. Even the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, uh, sorry, the, of, of Chicago, has been warning quite clearly in a report about that last week. So, is Japan a market that you like?
1: Because presumably, its industry, its exporters, are super competitive at the moment, aren't they? With the with the yen at this level.
2: Absolutely. If, if one can tolerate a substantial degree of volatility and can invest for, for the longer term, I think there are great opportunities. Not to say there aren't any risk. Again, sovereign debt is really, really high. Demographics is a big challenge, by the way. That's also, in my view, the biggest challenge that China is facing now, demographics. Um, mm. But overall, risk return profiles uh, is quite attractive now, in my view.
3: There's always the old issue about uh, sovereign debt uh, concerns, particularly in the case of Japan and the case of China. And I'm afraid we always forget that both of them are major net lenders to the world. Look, mm. net lenders never go bankrupt. Okay, net borrowers do. Look at Russia, look at Argentina, look at mm. Venezuela. So in the case of Japan, I really, really admire them, okay, because they stack to a consistent policy. They said, we are really cursed by low inflation. We want high inflation and we'll do anything that takes to get it there.
1: Good. But they're getting it, aren't yeah. they? But
3: just not the inflation well, they well, want. Though. Thank you. That's, that's the, always the old point of going, and that is, is here where my anti-monetarism comes into play. In other words... For the last 25 years, the link between uh, variations in the stock of money and liquidity have got absolutely no connection with uh, movements in prices. So, uh, you know, you're pulling completely at the wrong string or rather you're pushing completely at the wrong string. But nonetheless, that's what they want. And that's where they're getting. They have been getting inflation, of course, in the case of assets, but not in the case of bread and shoes.
1: Now, let me ask you about uh, President Xi Jinping's visit to Central Asia. He attended a meeting yesterday of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization in the Uzbek city of Samarkand. Now, the SCO uh, consists of China, Russia, India, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and soon, uh, apparently, Iran. And the group accounts for a gr- around a third of the world's land. 40 of the world's population and 25% of GDP. Is this an area, is is this sending a signal, do you think, that particularly given the declining relations with the US and Europe, this is, um, if you like, a grouping that China is going to turn towards for sort of economic growth? Look, what was very interesting was the comments
3: in the press of what was said and not said and it became also... In terms, it became also a, an exercise in biblical interpretation. You know, was there any comma before the expressions welcome or was it welcome and something else? And uh, my reaction to that is it is a regional uh, unit Okay, China is also very acutely aware, with the exception of Kazakhstan, which is a major exporter, both of uranium and of oil. Uh, the rest, without being uh, disrespectful or, or silly about this, okay, they are not major components of, uh, of the global trading mm. economy. Okay, mm. trading, I emphasize that, okay, and uh, therefore
1: consider it as being friendly with your neighbors. Martin, of course, there, there, there are some key countries on the Belt and Road Initiative. There aren't there, particularly Kazakhstan. That was really the f- the first country on the Belt and Road Initiative.
2: Yes, of course. You know, China is looking for for friends everywhere with tensions and potentially, you know, further rising um, tensions between East and West. But yes, I think there are, you know, opportunities in the region um, uh, to sort of manage some of those risks. I would also just note that. Um, Just earlier this week, Indonesia finally ratified the RCEP um, trade uh, agreement. That's something that's sort of fallen completely off people's radar, but it's actually the world's largest free trade zone. And and it's just really working its way through sort of this year and then um, uh, uh, over the coming years. And I think that's really... Um, going to have uh, good potential, bringing good potential for, for the countries involved, particularly Japan uh, again as well, where, where a lot of taxes to uh, exports uh, to China are going to be cut, but also um, across the region generally balancing some of those risks that um, the East-West trade you know, frictions bring.
1: Thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. You heard there Martin Henniker, Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James's Place, Wealth Management. Andrew Ferris, who's the CEO of Econosis Advisory.
4: You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio
1: 3. Rams 825, an announcement from the transport department due to a fallen tree. All lanes of Perth Street near Princess Margaret Road are closed to all traffic. On the phone now from uh, Mumbai, India, is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Um, let's continue the discussion about inflation. We've had some inflation data, haven't we, from India, uh, first of all, this year. CPI was at 7% uh, year on year, slightly higher uh, than expected, up from 6.71% the previous month. What is, what's the inflation picture looking like um, over there?
0: Yes, there was a bit of a turnaround uh, on inflation from you know uh, fuel prices uh, bringing down the, the headline numbers over the last couple of months. But it, what appears to be the case in this uh, spike back up is that food prices uh, have uh, increased some, from sort of 6.75% to 7.6% over the month. And that's somewhat seasonal um, in, in August. also a reflection that um, a bit like in the US where the CPI number was driven more by non-fuel factors which is the level of concern. So a little bit like what we saw in CPI during the week, we're seeing it coming through other parts rather than purely inflation-driven by high energy costs.
1: Mm. And it it seems, though, that compared to the US, inflation is more or less under control, isn't it? Whereas in the US, we keep getting surprised by this hotter-than-expected inflation data that every time at the moment seems to be taking the market by
0: surprise. Yeah, I think India uh, generally is adapted to uh, essentially higher inflation overall if you look at it from a trend level. So the comfort level for inflation in the in India is around 4% on average with a 2% swing either way. So it's certainly above that 6% comfort level on the high side, which will likely lead to a further move by the RBI in, in, at the end of this month. But mm. you're right, I think uh, it's a little bit more stable and it's a little bit more... I guess, uh, measurable in terms of the impact of inflation on the economy right now in India because they're quite used to it, uh, to have slightly high elevated prices. And as I said, seasonality around food at this time of year is not surprising and hence the number hasn't really caused a huge amount of uh, reaction in the market.
1: Now, we had um, Fitch revise down its global GDP forecast, but they did say about India uh, they expect the economy to grow 7% in the financial year to March 2023. That's a slowdown from 78 previously, but still, nevertheless, pretty impressive growth there, isn't there?
0: Yeah, India is it will be the fastest, largest, the fastest growing largest economy in the world. Um, you know, notwithstanding the headwinds that are starting to appear across the global economy, Um, And that's a good sign. 7% about the the average target now certainly has come down. Uh, You know, the most optimistic were in the eights uh, earlier in the year, but that's obviously being dialed Mm. down. We're more probably in um, 6.5%, maybe even a little softer. So I think the data we need to see, the third quarter data, I think is going to be really interesting across the globe to see how, how much of the bite... Higher interest rates has had on economic uh, confidence and economic growth. So it'll be similar in India to see. Having said that, in India we should get the uplift third quarter uh, calendar on the back of the festival seasons, which were really, really strong and expectations are high on the retail front.
1: We should mention because it's sort of slipped under the radar a bit, but India is now the world's fifth largest economy. It's overtaken uh, the United Kingdom. It has an economy now of 3.5 trillion compared to, to Britain's 3.2 trillion. And presumably, um, it's only going to get bigger, isn't it? Because unlike the UK, which is forecast to go into recession this year, India's going to keep on growing. Yeah, I
0: think India will be top three uh, uh, within the next within couple of decades. I think that's. Uh, I think that goes without saying. I mean, pure GDP is going to continue to grow above average to the rest of the world, so that'll mean their share of GDP will increase in a global sense. So, yeah, India's on track to be the third largest. That's for sure. Um, it's not all. It's not all rosy, as they say. You know, the devil's in the detail. But um, you know, lots of things that the government needs to do to make sure that that journey is smooth for as many of the population as possible. But uh, yeah, it'll happen.
1: Okay. Now, let me ask you quickly about Foxconn and Vedanta. They're t- tying up uh, to build one of the first semiconductor manufacturing uh, factories in India. It's going to be almost $20 billion of investment there. Is, this, is, is India planning to become um, a, a global player in, in semiconductor manufacturing?
0: I think it's clear that India needs to develop more domestic manufacturing of component parts in the supply chain. Um, and semiconductors is a very good example of that. And this is a really strong decision um, for uh, Indian government to pursue. You know, clearly some subsidies to support Foxconn and Vedanta in this deal to base uh, this uh, factory and this uh, uh, production facility in, in Gujarat. Um, the semiconductor market in India will grow like twenty percent KGAR up to twenty twenty six, and we are like a sixty four billion. And what it reflects is this made in India focused. So really building that supply chain more on shore, more domestic manufacturing, particularly in the priority sectors of which semiconductors and display fabrication would certainly be one of them. So it's a good news story. It's a big investment, $19 billion, billion over, and and some 100,000 jobs to be created. So... This one's got some some good positive press over the last couple of days. That's
1: great. Well, have a great weekend, Toby. Thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Societe Generale India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this week. The ASX 200 in Australia is off three quarters of a percent. Uh, In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is down 1% now. The Cosby in South Korea off a third of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 200 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday morning at the usual time of 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is back chats with Janice Wong and Andrew Work. The weather forecast, mainly fine and dry. Very hot during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be around 34 degrees. And it's going to be persistently very hot and mainly fine in the next couple of days. There is a red fire danger warning in force and also the very hot weather warning. Temperature right now, 30 degrees, 69% relative humidity. It's 8.31. Here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news.
4: Legislator Chan Su-Hung is urging the government to act quickly to prevent a wave of food outlet closures. A catering representative has said that after a three-month rent moratorium ended in July... Landlords have been chasing tenants for outstanding payments. Mr Chan told RTHK the government should offer incentives to landlords to defer or reduce rental payments to prevent a domino effect of shops shutting down.
0: I have reminded the government that when the rent-grace period ends, many shops may face the risk of being forced to shut down, since they would be asked to pay for multiple outstanding rents at once. The government should not rely on the bill, and after the bill is passed, do nothing else. They should do something. And I would urge the government to offer tax cuts for landlords, as an example, who were willing to exempt tenants from immediate payment of over rents and to extend its interest free program
4: for the property owners who rely on rent payments. A school bus driver has been hurt by a fallen tree in Homantin this morning. The incident happened at around 7:40 outside Hopyat Church School on Perth Street. Reports say no students were on the school bus when it was struck by the falling tree. The school bus and a private car nearby have been badly damaged. It's not yet known why the tree fell. Firefighters are at the scene cutting the trunk of the tree before removing them. Hong Kong has reported 8,187 new COVID cases, 164 of which were imported. Of approximately 2,800 COVID patients in hospital, 49 are in a critical condition, while six more patients with COVID have died. The former head of the hospital authority and the Centre for Health Protection, Leung-Pak Yin, said the crude mortality rate for COVID has fallen to levels similar to those of seasonal flu. The Centre's Albert Au, however, said such comparisons can be misleading. He spoke to an interpreter. There is no empirical evidence to suggest that the B A point five, B A point four substrains in circulation are milder than the previous subvariants. So if we only take a snapshot for a certain period of time for comparison, it would be misleading. Because of the various measures adopted by the government, the fatality rate in the fifth wave dropped at one point. That's due to vaccination as well as other anti-epidemic measures introduced. Hence, we cannot compare the severity of the two diseases using a few months as the basis of the period for comparison. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Andrew Work.
2: And me, Janice Wong.
1: Today is September 16th and we are looking at the latest COVID situation after the head of the World Health Organization said the end of the pandemic is in sight. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the Director General of WHO, said the number of reported deaths from the COVID-19 last week was the lowest since March 2020
0: and that the world has never been in a better position to end the pandemic.
2: But he again urged nations to maintain their vigilance and to prepare for a future surge in cases.